We are going to be in Psalm 50 this morning, 5-0, Psalm 50. And as you find your place in Psalm 50, let me point out that this psalm follows the pattern of a well-established Old Testament legal proceeding. It's basically a covenant lawsuit. We see this, this format most often used in the prophets. Isaiah uses it quite a bit. And, and basically what's happening is, is the covenant or agreement between God and his people has been damaged or broken. So God proclaims the failures of his people, Israel, and he justifies his own judgments against them. As I read this psalm, I want you to listen to the common elements in such a lawsuit. The parties involved are summoned to court. Witnesses are called to observe the execution of justice. A judge sits to hear the evidence the opposing parties, they present their cases. And after all the testimony has been heard, the judge pronounces judgment. If the accused have fulfilled their covenant obligations, they are declared righteous. And if they, are, if they have not done that, then they are declared wicked. So listen to those things as I read through Psalm 50, starting in verse 1 through the end. The Mighty One, God the Lord, has spoken. And summon the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heaven above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Verse 16. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief... You are pleased with them, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Verses 1 through 6, we observe the summons to appear. The summons to appear. Let me say at the outset here that this first section is really the setup for sections 2 and 3. And so bear with me as I attempt to give some context for the two judgments that God will proclaim against his people. 
we are struck immediately in verse 1 by three different titles that are used for God. Who has spoken? Who is summoning his people to give account? The Mighty One, God, the Lord. The Mighty One. It's a translation of the Hebrew title for God, El, E-L. And it emphasizes that God is the only one who possesses might and strength and power. God, in English there, it's a translation of the Hebrew title Elohim. And it's a reference to the fact that God is the creator, the sustainer, and the supreme judge of the world. In Genesis 1-1, we read, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And then we find Yahweh, translated Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all caps, translated Lord in English, which is God's personal name, the name with which he revealed himself to Israel. It is God's covenant name, the name with which he binds himself to his people. And so Yahweh stresses God's intimacy and faithfulness toward people who are the focus of his particular care and love. So we can read verse 1, let me paraphrase here, as the God who alone possesses might, strength, and power, and who speaks nothing into something and sustains creation by the ongoing power of his word, and who faithfully pursues the people to who he has bound himself by his great love. This God and none other summons you, the mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken. In other words, pay attention. What happens if you are subpoenaed and you don't show up for court? Well, you suffer a fine or maybe even jail time. What happens if you don't show up when the creator of heaven and earth sins for you? Well, you ignore those summons at your own loss and peril. So who is it that God is calling his witnesses? Verse 2, he summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. The creator of heaven and earth calls upon his creation to act as witnesses. Verse 4, he summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Now we find back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 26, a warning from Moses to Israel. Moses plainly says that after they settle in the land that God has given to them, they will act corruptly, they will turn to idols, and in their ease and comfort, they will forget about God. And so Moses, back in Deuteronomy 4.26, says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. The job of a witness is to confirm the charges and everything that occurs. Everything that occurs occurs beneath the heavens and upon the earth. And even as the Lord searches the motives and the intentions of the heart, so nothing done within God's creation is hidden from God's sight. Therefore, the creation is called to witness. God previously made a covenant with Israel from Mount Sinai. He entered into a, a binding agreement with the people whom he had delivered from slavery out of Egypt, and he placed upon them expectations as to how they were to behave, how they were to conduct themselves in worship, how they were to act toward one another. And these expectations are summarized and simplified in the Ten Commandments. The writer of Hebrews, this is Hebrews 12 in the New Testament, tries to describe that scene at Mount Sinai when the Lord descended upon the mountain. He writes, Upon it was blazing fire and darkness and gloom and whirlwind, 
there was a blast of the trumpet and sound of words, which was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. And again, in Psalm 50, God has summoned his people to him once more. Verse 3, fire devours before him and is very tempestuous around him, stormy around him. But this time it's obviously not Mount Sinai, but out of Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the location of the temple where the presence of God dwelled in the day of the psalmist. This is the Zion untouched as of yet by judgment. This is the Jerusalem that's described in Lamentations before the temple is raised, before the city has been burned with fire. Lamentations 2.15, this is the city of which they said, the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth. Where God chooses to dwell, there is indescribable beauty. And the sense of his nearness, it overrides our senses, and it lays us, or it should lay us, in the dust before him in such splendor. So listen to the words of the people when God made a covenant with them from Sinai, because this theme is coming back up in Psalm 50. Exodus 24, 7. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. There it is. The declaration spoken with, with all sincerity, the fire and the smoke and the thunder struck healthy and necessary fear into their hearts. They wanted to obey such a God, and they thought that they could. They really did. And even now from Zion, Psalm 50, verse 3, the people of God are confident. May our God come and not keep silence. Really? Is that what you want? When God first gave his law to his people, they mistakenly believed that they were capable of keeping it. And they did not realize, like we often fail to realize, that God did not give us his commandments in order for us to fulfill his expectations. God gave us his law to reveal what he already knows about our ability to meet his expectations. That is that we cannot. We cannot. But we still try. And we think that the next time is going to be different. I was saved apart from anything I could do to earn salvation. But now, maybe I can obey God out of my own strength. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Psalm 50 is not a judgment against the unbeliever and against the godless. Psalm 50 is a legal examination of the people of God. Verse 5, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Gather my godly ones to me. The Lord's about to deal with two areas that plagued Israel, and they are two areas that plague his church as well. We're so often concerned with the world's misbehavior that we miss what is out of order in our own house. 1 Peter 4, 7, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And the Lord Jesus will cleanse his own house before he will use his people, the church, to be of any effect to those that are outside of her. The two charges that we see in this psalm are against formalism and hypocrisy. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, 
But sometimes we as the very chosen of God do not do so. So God himself is judge. So let's look at these indictments in turn. Verses 7 through 15, a warning to the formalist. A warning to the formalist. Look at verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God. If anyone's dragged into court, there, there must be a charge that's brought against them. And so what exactly is the standard that God holds his people to? Well, we've already noted that the Ten Commandments serve the purpose of offering the standard by which we are to be judged. And those commandments, they can be broken down into two sections. Commandments 1 through 4 deal with our duty toward God. You can find those in Exodus 20. Jesus summed up those first four commandments in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Commandments 5 through 10 pertain to our duty toward others. And Jesus summed those up when he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He made it pretty easy to understand anyhow. Paul, the apostle, he reiterates our duty to the final six commandments in Romans 13, 9 through 10. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And I point this out because the first group, the formalists, they broke the commandments to love God. And the second group, the hypocrites, broke the commandments to love man. And so let's see how God deals with the, the formalists, first of all. Verse 8, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. Israel, like every other ancient society, practiced a bloody religion. The act of bringing sacrifices for worship was not unique to Israel. The formal practice of religion has throughout history largely been a very gory affair as the blood of animals drenched the altars of shrines and temples all over the world. The difference in Israel's case is that they worshipped the true God. They were not to offer their sacrifices to lifeless idols. Because sacrifice is what God required, the Lord clearly states, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. It's not what this is about. The Lord does not take issue with his people worshiping. The external acts, the, the bringing of the best lamb to the temple, the laying on of hands to, to symbolically confer the sinner, the guilt of the sinner to the animal, the, the slitting of the throat, the sprinkling of the blood on the altar, the burning of the pieces, the, the eating of the meat together in the case of a thank offering. And all of this, God was pleased because that's what he was expecting. That's what he commanded. Neither does the Lord take issue with the external expressions of our worship. And as a church, under the new covenant, we have much freedom and latitude in those externals. Some of us sing hymns. Some of us stick to contemporary praise songs. Some of us lift our hands in worship, and some of us kneel for congregational prayer. Some of us prefer a preacher behind a pulpit, and some like him to be sitting on a stool. Some of us are laid back. We're, we're low church folks. And other, others of us, we prefer liturgy, something a little more high churchy. And the vast majority of us probably do not even conduct our services like believers in the first century would have done so. But that's another message altogether. My point is, is that we, we all worship using some kind of form. We approach God together in worship with formality. That's what we're doing here this morning. The most free-flowing church service, or one that seems to be, 
follow some form, even if it's unspoken, even if it's only the pastor that knows what's going on. We're people that like the familiar, we like the routine, we like to know what to expect, and that, that's good. That's fine. What is not fine, and what God condemns, is formalism. The definition of formalism is excessive adherence to prescribed forms. Simply put, the form, the order, the pattern takes precedence over an authentic worship experience of the living God. And God is always after the heart. He will not, he will not abide the motions of our corporate worship to replace a genuine encounter with him. Listen to the mistakes that the people of God made in their worship. You can hear their folly by God's responses to it. Look at verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God calls all of creation, the heavens and the earth, to witness to it because all of creation belongs to him. The worshipers of Elohim, they thought that they were doing him a favor. They thought they were offering to God something that he did not already possess. And on the surface... At face value, that's absurd. When we realize the logic behind the words of God, we're struck by how ridiculous it is to think that anyone could give something to the God who first gave everything to everyone. What do you have that was not first given to you by the giver? Another difference between Israel's worship and the pagan nations around her was that Israel was to bring sacrifices as acts of thanksgiving for what God had done. In every other pagan religion, sacrifices were made in order to feed the gods, to literally feed the gods. That was the mindset. Sacrifices, sacrifices were made to appease the gods. The gods of the people, they were a lot like their worshipers. They demanded mere servitude, they craved power, and the greatest power is exercised over those who are the most blindly obedient to it. We don't know why we obey. We, we, we're just doing it. It's just our duty. Look at verse 11. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. Again, how ridiculous it is to think that God gets hungry. And so uh, ludicrous really is the thought that with a bit of sarcasm, the Lord says in verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. And we might laugh at the absurdity of anyone feeding God with their sacrifices. And the Israelites, they would have laughed as well. They would have laughed as well. Yet, yet, the attitude and the heart of a formalist is the same. So before we're too hard upon them, let's reflect that we as a church do the same thing, if we're not careful. We know we're not supposed to feel this way. We, we would never say it out loud. Yet, each one of us, if we're not careful, we place our religious duties in a category that's labeled doing God a favor. Doing God a favor. And here's the difference. Instead of attending a worship service in order to declare the worth of God with the people of God, which is the definition of public worship, declaring the worth of God with the people of God, instead of doing that, I attend a service because it's my duty. I'm being pleasing to God because I'm so dutiful. And God's not impressed. 
And what happens is your obedience is simply for you to feel better about yourself, not for you to forget about yourself and to focus on God. Or instead of reading your Bible and praying daily out of a love to know the will of him who loved you so much that he died for you, maybe you sit down and open the Bible and out of mere habit, that's what it is. It's just a habit. And godly habits are good. They're good. You need to form them so that you will still go to the Word and still go to prayer, even when you don't feel like it, because all of us, at times, don't feel like it, and we need that habit. But if your devotional time is only performed out of habit, it is not done as an act of worship to the Lord. You do it out of compulsion to keep your routine and not out of love. Formalism. Formalism. Verse 13, shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Of course, God did not need the sacrifices of his people. But isn't it interesting as uh, we see that at the first sign of displeasure, the thoughts of God's people fly to points of ritual instead of relationship. Instead of how can we draw closer to God, it is what can we do? What can we do to try to fix this? When we feel convicted of, of going through the motions, we tend to buckle down and, and just try harder. After Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3-7, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Instead of love, they felt guilt. Instead of acceptance, they felt shame. And their solution was not to cast themselves upon God's mercy, confessing what they had done wrong. Their solution was to sew fig leaves together in this desperate and futile attempt to cover their nakedness. And it was futile because they obviously could not hide from an all-knowing, ever-present God. It was as desperate as thinking that God somehow needed or benefited from the sacrifices that Israel brought to him. And it was as futile as believing that going through the motions of worship or prayer or Bible reading or even service to others will somehow compensate for a lack of love toward the Lord. So whether it's trying to hide from God the state of your heart or believing that God needs your religious practices or simply doing something religious to look good before men, it all comes from the same place. It comes from the same place, which is a lack of gratitude. A lack of gratitude. A failure to be thankful. And how do I know that? Not because I'm so smart. I know it because of what verse 14 tells us about how to combat formalism. It goes back to the heart of sacrifice. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. This is the significant difference between the sacrifices Israel offered to God and the sacrifices offered by the nations around her to their gods, lowercase g. The sacrifices of the world are given because they're doing their God a favor. They're earning approval. They're fulfilling a duty in order to be accepted. When you offer to God your worship, your praise, your time, your life, you do so for the exact opposite reason, or you should do so for the exact opposite reason. You do so only as a response for what God has done for you. Any worship, any service, any ritual that does not flow from a place of gratitude is it's formalism. It's empty. It's unacceptable. 
Listen to how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. The act of, of bringing the animal sacrifice was never the point. God always, has always, will always look at the condition of the heart. If you're serving God without gratitude, your service is formalism. It's all form. It's no substance. Because the substance is thankfulness. You give thanks because someone has done something for you. That's why you give thanks. But how easy is it to approach worship or prayer or Bible reading or good deeds as if we are doing something for God? The cure for formalism is gratitude. Let's look at the second group. Verses 16 through 21. Not only is formalism a danger to the people of God, but so is hypocrisy. A warning to the hypocrites. Verses 16 through 21. Verse 16, but the wicked, to the wicked, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Whether or not a genuine believer can be classified as wicked is beside the point. We've seen here that, that God is addressing his people. In this section particularly, the psalmist is dealing with those who recite the laws of God. They know the laws of God. It's those that they've cast behind their back. They know what God expects. They, they extol the goodness of God's statutes. They are those who speak of the covenant as if they are receivers of its benefits. Verse 17, for you hate discipline. You cast my words behind your back. You might appear to possess self-control, but the words of God are on your lips there. They're not in your heart. So whether these are those who are in actual relationship with the Lord or just merely professors of being so, it doesn't matter. They're claiming to be. And if we're each honest with ourselves, we will find ourselves standing in the place of the hypocrite at times. With the formalist, it was, it was a question of breaking the first four commandments. Those that deal with loving God from the heart, worshiping God alone, not serving false gods, reverencing the name and reputation of God, setting aside time to rest as God himself did. That's the first four commandments, focused on God, the formalist. But when it comes to dealing with the hypocrites, it's a question of breaking the last six commandments, the commandments that have to do with our relationship toward others. Where do I get that from? Look at verse 18. We find a hypocrite approving of the thief. Thou shalt not steal. We also see the hypocrite's association with an adulterer. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We read in verses 19 through 20 a reference to an evil mouth, a deceitful tongue, and a slanderous statement. Thou shalt not bear false witness. When it comes to hypocrisy, it is a sin against another. It's a sin against another person. The word hypocrite means play actor. And in the ancient world, it referred to how actors, they would put masks on when they went on stage to perform dramas. And the mask, it bore an expression that did not reflect the heart, did not even necessarily coincide with the real expression behind the mask. That's how Jesus used the word. And the word hypocrite is not in our text in Psalm 50, but the idea clearly is. 
God knows the heart and he knows what lies beneath the mask. He knows your motives. He knows your intentions. He's not fooled by the fig leaves. You and I, we are always exposed before God, though we desperately attempt to cover ourselves. And so hypocrisy is not directed toward God. We can't fool God, and we all realize that. It's directed toward men. We can pretend to hide from God, but we know that's ultimately futile. It's before men that we claim to be one thing and then go off and do or be something else. What does hypocrisy look like? What does it tend to look like for those of us in the church? Unfortunately, it looks a lot like what Jesus describes in Matthew 6, especially for those of us who've grown up or spent many years in Christian circles or Christian settings. The hypocrisy Jesus spotlights in Matthew 6 is applicable because it's of the religious sort. The hypocrisy that occurs among the people of God is closely related to the formalism practiced among the people of God. And Jesus gives two examples of religious hypocrisy, practicing righteousness only to be seen by others, praying to be praised by others, and fasting to be noticed by others. And these are all obviously religious practices. They are things, they are each things that God expects his people to perform. And they can all be done in such a way that they appear totally sincere. They appear powerful, effective, appealing. And yet they're only a cover for a heart that's not right before the Lord. What is the root of desiring to be noticed by men? Pride. Pride, of course. I want people to think of me as a godly person. I want people to see me as a man or a woman that prays. I want people to know that I take the time to fast, even if I don't. In other words, I want to project things about my relationship with God that are not true. I'm more concerned with my image than I am with reality. And even if you don't struggle with hypocrisy in the area of public good deeds or prayer or fasting, you still struggle with your image. I know that because we all do. I know that because I know my own heart. The desire to appear better than you really are does not automatically go away at conversion. You and I, we just, we just learn to project ourselves religiously. We learn to wear a different mask, one that's acceptable in the church. Do you see how formalism and hypocrisy are so closely related? In formalism, you project a lie toward God. In hypocrisy, you project a lie toward men. And both are unacceptable in God's eyes. We fear exposure. If others knew who I really am, they would reject me. And so I must appear as if I'm something that I'm not. And it's not, it's not the actions that are wrong. It's not, the, it's not the good deeds. It's not the prayer. It's not the fasting. It's not the religious exercises. It's, it's the motives. It's the motives. Instead of simply doing good to others because God has been so good to me, which should be your motive for doing good to others. Instead of doing good to others for that reason, I perform acts of righteousness to appear godly. 
And then I won't risk my church friends rejecting me. Instead of praying because I long to spend time with the Lord, who longs even more to spend time with me, which should be your motive for praying, by the way. Instead of doing it for that reason, I'm more concerned with what others think about my prayer life. And so I let them know how much time I'm spending in prayer. Instead of fasting in order to completely focus upon the Lord and His will, which is why you should fast, I fast so that others will focus on me. Pride. A religious front that, that keeps me from feeling exposed. But it goes beyond good deeds and prayer and fasting. Pride manifesting, revealing itself as hypocrisy can creep into every area of our religious lives. The clothes we wear, the, the way we talk, the, the theological interpretations that we hold, the opinions that we express, the facial expressions that we muster in order to cover our displeasure. Hypocrisy can be demonstrated in what we approve, can be demonstrated in what we disapprove. And it's seen when we elevate man-made rules and regulations to the same status as God's Word, and then choose to live by those rules even if they contradict God's Word. And this is God's indictment against hypocrisy. That is projecting what is not really in your heart. Verse 21, these things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was just like you. So true. We really believe that our opinions and our ideas and our judgments are a reflection of God's appraisal of the situation or of the person in question. We tend to think that God thinks and feels and analyzes just like we do. And we mistake his silence for his approval. We do so until we finally allow the penetrating power of his word to search our hearts through the Holy Spirit. If the immediate way to combat formalism is thanksgiving, then the way to combat hypocrisy is repentance. It's repentance. Look at verse 21, the second part. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. God is stating the case. This is his perspective. His perspective clears away all doubt as to whether you're being real or not. And when does that occur? That occurs the moment that you experience Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Good verse for you to memorize if you haven't done it already. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what God's word does. That's how God exposes motives and intentions. He uses his word the power of his spirit. And only then, when God brings those motives and intentions to the surface and shows us who we really are, are we in a place to be able to repent, to turn from projection to authenticity. That is, repentance from hypocrisy. Stopping to do that. Going the other way. 
but what is the ultimate cure for both formalism and hypocrisy? I don't mean what is the cure in the moment, thanksgiving for formalism, repentance for hypocrisy. I mean, what is the lasting and eternal cure, the only cure that will transform the heart from which flows the sinful tendency toward both formalism and hypocrisy? What is the only cure? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Verse 23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. To order your way aright. I want you to hear this. To order your way aright is not to try to fix yourself. That's not going to work. To order your way aright is not to try to forge your own path. To order your way aright is to adjust your way to God's way. And God's way is the gospel. You see, both in formalism and hypocrisy, you're pretending to be something that you're not. The difference is with formalism, you're trying to fool God. With hypocrisy, you're trying to fool man. But both are attempts to not feel naked, exposed, ashamed, and guilty. And the reason that we feel those things is the same reason that Adam and Eve felt them. They were naked and exposed and ashamed and guilty. That's what sin produces in our lives. The feelings are real because our sin is real. And the verdict is, the verdict is that you cannot free yourself of sin by going through the motions. And you cannot escape your sin by pretending it doesn't exist, no matter how religious that sin might be. During his life on earth, Jesus Christ, he never felt naked, exposed, ashamed, or guilty. Never felt that way because he was clothed in the very righteousness of God. And he was clothed in that righteousness because he always obeyed his Father. Sin produces shame and guilt. Jesus never sinned. So he never felt those things. He was the only one to live a completely authentic, genuine, and whole life before God the Father. His right, his, his heart was always right before God. He never wore a mask. What the gospel tells us is that on the cross, for a never again to be repeated moment in time, Jesus experienced nakedness, exposure, shame, and guilt. He took upon himself your nakedness and your exposure and your shame and your guilt. He took upon himself your sins. Jesus became sin on your behalf. And he died to receive the punishment that you rightly and justly deserve. And so do I. And Jesus rose from death to give you the very righteousness of God that he's clothed in. And this, this is the only ultimate cure for formalism and hypocrisy. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus is the only cure for your separation from God. 
By faith in Jesus Christ, you are brought into a right relationship with God. His forgiveness removes your sin and your shame and your guilt. And his righteousness covers your nakedness. You don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to pretend anymore. God sees to the very depths of your ugly heart and mind, and he still calls you his child. And he does this because you are approved in Jesus. You are clothed, worthy, significant, and accepted in the beloved, not in yourself, but in the beloved that's in Jesus. You don't have to pretend anymore. You can be yourself as a child of God. Believing the gospel is how you order your way aright. It's not what you do. It's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And only then, only then, if you have asked God to do that for you, to do for you what you could not do for yourself because Jesus has done it for you in your place, only then will you be in a position to go forth and to show the salvation of God. And to show it without formalism and without hypocrisy. You can be your real self, who God created you to be, because Jesus has set you free. Let's pray. Father, we get so tired and weary when it comes to pretending that we're something that we're not before you or doing it before others. We, we read of the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus from formalism and from hypocrisy. But Lord, we confess that we don't experience that like we should, but we want to. And so Lord, we pray that we'd allow your, your searching powerful and effective and active word to search our hearts, to bring to the surface all that needs to be repented of so that we can be authentic before you, we can be real before you, that we can give thanks for what you have done, and from that thankfulness and from your love that flows into our lives because of Jesus Christ, that we might go forth and be free and walk in that freedom and love others well. So Lord, today we ask that you'd help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.